and welcome this afternoon to Ali Smith's poem selection. The Poetry Festival is very grateful to Arts Council England for its generous support of the Poetry Festival. And we'd like to also thank the sponsor for this event, Viv Arscott. So thank you very much. We're now about to spend an hour in the company of Ali Smith and Susie Fay. And I'll just say a few words of introduction. Susie is a literary journalist, a member of the Authors Club and the Critics Circle, and she writes for The Guardian and the Financial Times, as well as teaching journalism at Brunel University. Susie has a particular interest in fiction and poetry, as well as having written her own poems and stories which have been published. She's interviewed a wide range of national and international authors, including Ali Smith. Ali Smith, CBE and Fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, whoa, has published many stories, short stories, collections, novels, memoirs, a range of literary criticism and newspaper articles. After studying English at Aberdeen and then American and Irish modernism at Cambridge, Ali went on to write plays for the Edinburgh Fringe and the Cambridge Footlights, as well as lecturing in Scottish, English and American literature. Her first book, written in 1995, Free Love and Other Stories, received two awards. And Ali, from then on, went on to win the Whitbread Novel of the Year, the Bailey's Women Prize for Fiction, the Folio and the Goldsmith Prize, and in 2014, the Costa Book Award for her novel of How to Be Both. And that novel was also um, nominated for the Man Booker Prize, um, as was Hotel World in 2001, and Autumn in 2017. And her most recent publication entitled Spring came out only a few months ago. In her early career, Ali won a poetry prize from the University of Aberdeen. <laughs> and she is now the patron of the Visual Verse online anthology, which indicates her special interest in poetry, of which we are about to find more. I have pleasure in presenting Susie Fay and Ali Smith. Thank you, Marilyn, for that very generous and lovely introduction. It was, it was lovely, thank you. I'm going to embarrass Ali a bit more, I think, oh, now God. that we started with her cringing. Um, I, I've known Ali for many years, and we, we have, as Marilyn said, we've been on stage before. Um, but I, I have a vivid member, memory of Ali at the Booker Prize oh. one year. Uh, you were on the shortlist, I believe... Zadie Smith was also on the shortlist. I think John Banville won that year. 2005. But I, oh, <laughs> a long time ago, right. Um, and I came up to you and said, how do you feel, how do you feel? And you said, I am so thrilled to be here in the Guildhall, London's wonderful Guildhall. Anyway, afterwards, as I say, John Banville won. I have seen authors storm out. I have seen authors be very upset. Yeah. Um, I saw Ali afterwards, and, and you were exactly the same. You were still <laughs> bouncing around, thrilled to be there. And I think that, you know, I hope I haven't embarrassed you too much with that little anecdote. No, but that, nice for one. me, it's sums nice. up yeah. the sort of writer you are, the sort of person you are, and that you are genuinely thrilled and perhaps in some way a little bit amazed yeah. by all the things that have been heaped on you. Oh, nothing to do with me. We're not amazed, yeah, but, really. you know, I mean, yeah, you don't, but you also don't those, take us for those, granted. Those, I mean, exactly, and those, those things are, they're, they're, they're gorgeous things to be part of when they're 
uh, when, when they're happening, as long as you're not writing. Because <laughs> if you're writing it's, uh, and you're working and some, something like that, the Booker thing happens, you're, you're like, it's like you have opened the window and a brass band is there going for days and days and days. And then you can't concentrate. So it's a part of the job which you could never have imagined would exist. Like, actually, in a strange way, like world travel is, because uh, I never thought in my life I would get to go to so many places mm. by being sedentary in a room, you know? <laughs> but it does. I mean, it's a, it's a strange uh, um, kind of payoff uh, to make you present in the world when you make yourself so absent mm. to write. So... And if it's any consolation, John Bandwell, who did win that year, um, said to me... Later, you know, a year later, he said that he hadn't really written for a year because he's, yeah. he, he calls exactly. it bookering, yeah. and you have to booker for a year. So you're, you're bookered. Uh, may, you, may you never win, Ali. We want you to keep writing. We don't want you to be bookering. That's, Just, that's never gonna, not a good use never of your time. Gonna, so, um, so, and we're, we're going to do a little experiment uh, with the audience. I just want to say that you are, you're kind of a black hole. Yep. We can't really we see can't you. We can't see you. We might need to see you. Um, well, not if they're only shouting oh, out. Oh, okay. All right. Ali okay. has got a, a wealth of poems to share. We're yeah. not going to be able to get through all of them. No but she's numbered them 1 to 28. 1 to 28, okay? So we're going to play poem bingo. We are. So you're just going to we're just going to ask you for a number. Someone's going to shout a number out and I'll go, "Oh, that's How much? Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> keen in lead. Did you say 28? Oh, he went to the end straight away. Yeah. yeah. Mm, I'm not sure whether I approve of that. Well, uh, you're going to have to wait. Should we go straight see, in? You're going to have to wait and see what Susie says. What do you think, Susie? I'm going to ask one question first, okay. and then we might take that. Okay. Uh, I, I just wanted to ask: Did you have a growing up? Um, did you have a wow moment with poetry? Uh -huh. Probably at school. Was there a poem or a poet? that suddenly turned you on to this amazing art form? No, it was like poetry was a kind of rebellion in, in my house. And I know that because the first uh, poetry book that I encountered um, was when I was about seven years old. And my sister, Anne, who is 12 years old, 11 years older than me, um, brought me uh, a copy of now, uh, when we were very young and now we are six, uh, all joined into one volume. And my mother went, oh, poetry, like that. Like she could not imagine what we would be doing reading poetry and that is because my mother who was an incredibly literate person who never got to be literate right she was a woman who'd been who'd left school at 13 and there were books in the house but my mother and my father because they were working so hard never had a chance to look at those books so I thought oh poetry is something really special if it makes my mother bristle so <laughs> so I read those and I you know learned them off by heart pretty much James James Robertson Robertson whether it be George Dupree took great <laughs> care of his mother though he was on you know I, I have them all in my head the king asked the queen and the queen asked the, I, those rhythms just went straight into me Anyway, the, and I found on our bookshelf uh, in our room, which was full of school books, a copy of Palgraves, which was the only poetry book in the house. Spring, the sweet spring, is the year's pleasant king. Then blooms each thing. Then maids dance in a ring. Cold doth not sting. The pretty maids do sing. Cuckoo, chug, chug, pooey, tabitaboo. And so, uh, you know, and I, uh, Palgraves was like a, a, a secret rebellion for me. And then when we got to school... Um, uh, to say, particularly to secondary school. I mean, I wrote a book of poems in in in, uh, in primary school, terrible poems, but I wrote them as a project. And then when we got to secondary school, I think I I styled myself as the poet, actually, out of thinking that was the most rebellious thing you could be. 
Okay, shall we go straight to number 28 then? Oh, 28. Oh. Yeah. We can't see them, so... You've chosen T.S. Eliot. Ah. This is interesting to me because I put him on there at the end. I only had 27, and then before I left the house, I brought with me Little Gidding. And the reason I brought Little Gidding is because I'm still amazed and proud that this time last week, uh, last Sunday, I got invited to the T.S. Eliot Festival and asked to read the whole of Little Gidding in front of the church at Little Gidding. And I can't tell you what, an ex what that was like, what an experience it was. I can't describe it to you. It was so exciting. And I didn't expect it to be that exciting. And so I'd, I'd, I'd said, yes, I would, I would read it. And I'd came, come back to the, for, to the reading of Four Quartets um, in, my, in my student self, my, my 19, 20-year-old self who had studied Eliot and who knew that The Wasteland was great poetry, but who thought Four Quartets wasn't really a poem. And I have thought that through my life, and occasionally I have re-encountered four quartets and thought, oh God, that's something amazing, and then never had the chance to look at it properly. And then they asked me at um, T.S. Eliot Festival uh, to read Little Gidding, so I read four quartets and read it and read it, and then read and read out loud Little Gidding over and over again. And I realised that in my, in my callow youth, and to some extent my callow adulthood, I thought, The Wasteland, yeah, it's a poem, I can contain The Wasteland. But what I realised reading Four Quartets was that it contains me. It contains us all, and it's more than a poem. It's something that's, that's poetry on another level, on another scale. And, and I just was astonished by its workings as I got to the very end of it. A chill crept up my back, right up to the top of my brain, and I knew that something transformatory happens to us when we read these poems. And Little Gidding is the, the last of Four Quartets, and the one that was most... Troubling to Eliot, who had written uh, Burton Horton East Coker, uh, The Dry of Ages, and then The War. And it's 1942, and he's, you know, he's been in London in, the, in, the, in the, the bombings, and he's now out of London trying to write this poem, which is denying him. But the blitz and the, the bombings and the war and the fear of the split that's happening across the world uh, is all the way through Little Gidding. And to some extent, it's, you can see it coming in the other in the other three quartets, as it were, the other three of the four quartets. So I will, I will read you the very, very last part um, of uh, Little Gidding, uh, which I just thought, uh, as I say to you, as I got to the end of it last week, in that extraordinary experience of reading it outside the church about which it is. Uh, this is what poetry can do. What we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. And every phrase and sentence that is right, where every word is at home, taking its place to support the others, the word neither diffident nor ostentatious, an easy commerce of the old and the new, the common word exact, without vulgarity, the formal word precise but not pedantic, the complete consort dancing together. Every phrase and every sentence is an end and a beginning, every poem an epitaph, and any action is a step to the block, to the fire, down the sea's throat or to an illegible stone, and that is where we start. We die with the dying, see they depart and we go with them. We are born with the dead, see they return and bring us with them. The moment of the rose and the moment of the yew tree are of equal duration. A people without history is not redeemed from time, for history is a pattern of timeless moments. So, 
While the light fails on a winter's afternoon in a secluded chapel, history is now and England. With the drawing of this love and the voice of this calling, we shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time through the unknown remembered gate when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning at the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree not known because not looked for but heard, half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea, quick now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well when the tongues of flame are enfolded into the crowned knot of fire, and the fire and the rose are one. I mean, in there, in there, that description of the sentence that is right, where every word is at home, taking its place to support the others, everything, as he says, the complete concert dancing together. I mean, it's like he goes, here's poetry, and here's the thing, round poetry, which is utter life force, creativity, the end and the beginning as it repeats and repeats. How does it work as a, a sense of place? When you went there, did you feel you already knew it in a way because you'd encountered it uh, in the uh, poem? What, what happens is, of course, because T.S. Eliot in Little Gidding writes off Little Gidding, he says, if you happen to come this way and see this place, say you were a broken king who happened to pass to Little Gidding, because that's where Charles I went to hide in the Cromwell time. He ended up at Little Gidding being looked after by, some, uh, <coughs> by a family called the Ferrers, who were related to Ted Hughes. So it's, it's the extraordinary roots and, and kind of profound connection of things which seem utterly disconnected through time and, you know, across the surface and down and up diachronically through time runs into this very pretty little church in which, you know, it's, there's, a, there's an inscription in um, stained glass on the wall that says, it is the good old way you are doing you know, just to keep you right. Just that simple. It's keep doing the good old way, the good old thing. And here's Elliot going, okay, so are we ever not in history? Is there ever not a point at which uh, things are falling apart and things yet as they fall apart, we overcome what it is to worry about them falling apart and actually understand that what's happening is bigger than us and bigger than it and something else altogether. I mean, to read it now, right now, history is now and, and, and England. I mean, to read it right now was an extraordinary experience as we face up to fascism again in a way that, that was happening through the 30s and into the 40s when Eliot was writing this in fear for all our lives, really. I mean, um, I, think of, I thought of him writing this 1941-42. I thought of Virginia Woolf leaving the world because she was so shaken and terrified at that point where it looked like the world had changed utterly, utterly. Mm. The terrible beauty, as Yeats called it. Was to write something so precise and clear and calm and controlled all under those circumstances. All shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. It's a, the liberation in this, which tells you that it's going to cost you everything to have that liberation, but the liberation in it. Anyway, the end and the beginning, well done, Mr. Yeah. Mr. Beard. Um, <laughs> 
who I can see at the back, got choosing the end and the beginning. Got the beginning to be a plant. That's like you win the prize. I don't know what the prize is, but well done. Let's have another number then. Okay, between one and twenty-seven. Nine. Number nine. Right, wait a minute till I change my glasses to see what that says. Um, the the rebel poet always has three pairs of glasses. <laughs> uh, right, number nine. Uh, oh, Thomas Hardy. Yes. Okay. The darkling thrush. Oh. Would you like to hear that? Okay, good. I think it's an absolute beauty of a poem. Um, uh, and I, I feel like almost family. My partner, Sarah, and uh, her uh, great aunt was Florence Hardy. Um, so it's, it's just extraordinary to me that I would even end up in the same house as a couple of letters of Hardy's, which we have somewhere in a bureau. I'm like, whoa, whoa. Okay, page 221. Uh, okay, darkling thrush. I leant upon a coppice gate when frost was spectre grey and winter's dregs made desolate the weakening eye of day. The tangled bind stems scored the sky like strings of broken lyres and all mankind that haunted nigh had sought their household fires. The land's sharp features seemed to be the century's corpse outlent. His crypt, the cloudy canopy, the wind, his death lament. The ancient pulse of germ and birth was shrunken hard and dry, and every spirit upon earth seemed fervorless as I. At once a voice arose among the bleak twigs overhead, in a full-hearted evensong of joy illimited. An aged thrush, frail, gaunt, and small in blast-beruffled plume, had chosen thus to fling his soul upon the growing gloom. So little cause for carolings of such ecstatic sound was written on terrestrial things afar or nigh around that I could think there trembled through his happy goodnight air some blessed hope whereof he knew and I was unaware. Oh. When did you come across Hardy the poet as opposed to Hardy the novelist? I uh, think now he's yeah. really uh, revered as a poet and, and before it was seen as a thing he did on the side. I know, and truly revered as a poet. He's, he's a, well, he's a great everything, actually, Hardy. He's, he's a master of all the forms. But his poetry I first read in a very slim selected poems that I bought for, like, 50p at a fete uh, in Aberdeen when I was a student. And the first... Uh, the first poem I opened it at was, Osider is a great thing, a great thing to me. <laughs> there are a lot of poems where Hardy really has some fun. Um, Amelia, my dear, this does everything crown, the one about the ruined maid. Um, and you get, you know, you read those two and you get the underscore of um, Tess and the underscore of Far From the Madding Crowd. And you understand that he, his ear uh, was listening on all the levels at all times and listening all the time for what language was doing anciently and in a way that holds the ancient and drives it forward to his contemporary to try and understand how those two things are balancing and there he is at the turn of the very turn of the century in this poem going what is in store and there's a bird you know when I was writing spring the last novel uh, 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 that came out um, of these uh, seasonal novels I was writing <clears throat> that poem meant, meant a lot to me um, the spring is about how, I mean, it's about spring, this poem. It's about the way in which when winter has eaten everything, everything is closed, bleak, 
cold. There's no way you can see still the bird song, you know. And there's a there's a, a a moment in his notes which he asked Florence Hardy to burn, and she didn't. His note, his, there's a kind of notebook, a journal. He asked her to burn them. There's a there's a there's a it's a thrilling little book. His notebooks uh, published a couple of years ago. The thing he never wanted anyone to see. It's thrilling to read it with these throwaway moments where he thinks about the ghost of a a cabinet maker standing in front of his cabinet. If, wherever the cabinet is in the world, there's the ghost of the cabinet maker standing, looking at his work. You know, and the, the, the very notion that things left in the world hold our spirits. Um, but there was a, this kind of throwaway moment in that in those journals where he says, he looks at the time of the year and he says, um, this, these birds, the germs of the birds coming next year, that's all we've got of them, but they're the germs of them. And they'll produce the birds, which will then die, and the germs that they leave will produce the next birds and the next birds. And you get this, un this micro-understanding that's, again, the underneath, the under, the under, the kind of, kind of the under-appreciation, the under, the appreciation of the under-growth, uh, as it were, that comes through Hardy always. Do you think writers, including yourself, you're sort of you're butting up against that as you try to write? That there might be something that's inexpressible beyond your writing. Always, God, mm. it's always inexpressible until you 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 have uh, sort of, as it were, closed your eyes and found the way to do it. Um, and he was uh, he was master of of that and and of knowing our mortality uh, um, and and knowing how to articulate uh, what it is like to be both enthralled to that and at the same time living um which of course is what this gorgeous where do you stand on this whole business of of notes and um you know would you ever seek to destroy notebooks or i mean now people sell their archives for large sums of money I, including I, things like you know diaries to-do lists it can all go in a big box and the university of wherever will pay you for it. Where do you stand on this sort of thing? I keep getting these letters from libraries asking me to, to think about giving them my archive. Mm. And that keeps making me think, I don't want to do it until I'm dead. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be thinking at any point or conscious at any point that there's something I'm doing that might end up in an archive. I mean, it just is the most ridiculous thing in the world. I mean, imagine, you know, some, some shopping list or some mistakes I make with the books I'm writing. I don't want anyone to read those. I want them to read the books. I mean, why would I want anyone to mm. see the point at which I played the wrong note, you know? Mm. Uh, 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 why would you want that to get anywhere near the thing that you, you finally let go because it's, you've, you've done what you, uh, as much as you can with it? Um, so you wouldn't show your workings? I never do. I don't think, I, I think it's not about showing our workings. I think it's about making the thing right and then sending it off out to sea and hoping that you have made it right. Um, on the other hand, while I've been working on those seasonal novels, uh, before we start every one, my editor and I go along to the British Library and look at an artefact. We did this because the first one was called Autumn, and, um, and I wanted to... I knew it would have something Keatsian in it, and I wanted to... Um, go and visit the poem <clears throat> to Autumn. So we, we wrote to the British Library and asked could we come, and they said, yes, we could come. And so we went and we got put into this vacuum-sealed room, which, which if, if they when they push a button on the outside of it, the door shuts, and all the air just <laughs> out of the room so that nothing will ever burn in that room. That's where they keep Keats's notebooks. And I, we looked at the, the manuscript form of To Autumn, and I was just... Oh, it, was so, it was such an experience. It's so... 
but I can't associate my, my nonsense scribblings with that. So, you know, so I'm like, uh, after I'm dead, someone can sort out an archive. Give it, give it 200 years them. or less Nobody's going to want I mean, nobody's going to want them. Nobody's going to want them, you know. Uh, well, we have we have academia, don't we? And people sifting through, you know, textual analyses and the early work of Ali Smith and it's, all this sort of thing. It's not that, is That's it? That's sort of what it's, it's. It's not. It's not the sifting through and seeing. I mean, there's an in, there's an interesting thing in looking at a letter of Catherine Mansfield's and seeing that there's, you know, she misspells things in the in the published letters. Then it clears up the misspellings, or it, you know, there's a there's an, there's a very very lovely thing about experiencing someone's handwriting. It's. It's, it's a true value of us. It's a shame that we now live in a world where we lose, we use our handwriting so much less because the thing that comes, whatever it is, through our structure and out our hands like this when we're writing, that's really an expression of us and, ex and also an expression of our time and our education. And so to, that's a, an amazing thing. It was amazing to be, it's amazing to be in the presence of uh, some, a, a writer who's writing you who have loved handwriting. You know. I've seen a typescript by Sylvia Plath mm. of one of, of Ariel, in fact, which they also have at the British Library. Um, and I think she's handwritten the title. There is some handwriting, but it, you all know the poem Ariel, and it is soul-shattering. And she drew a little daisy on it. Oh. And, and it says for Al, which is Al Alvarez. Yes. And it was his presentation copy. Yeah. Um, and the fact that she just drew a little... Daisy is not what we think about Sylvia Plath. Yeah. We would imagine that it would go, Rah! you know, there'd be a, a sort of scrawl of horror, but not at all. And yeah. that says something about poetry as well, I think. Should we have another number? 17. Oh, 17 four and a 17. Four and 17, I'll read them both at once. <laughs> <laughs> I can read the other one. Okay. Oh, okay, do you want what to? What are four? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you can. What oh. are, what's four and seventeen? Okay, then? so four is Keats, so we should read Keats, right? Yeah. And, and seventeen is Shakespeare. So, so, we'll, so I'll give you Shakespeare and I'll read Keats. Yeah. Okay. Um, the Keats poem I brought with me is um, in in Drear. Uh, do you know this poem about the tree? Um, in Drear Nighted December. Do you know it? Oh, it's a, such a wonderful poem. My next door neighbour knew it. She she died last year. I miss her with my whole heart, and she alerted me to this poem um, of Keats's and. It's such a, a, a gorgeous thing because its rhyme structure is so unexpected and it's also so... Well, you see, um, uh, and I'll read it to you and then, and then I'll give you the little bit of Shakespeare I've got to read. Okay. In drear-nighted December, too happy, happy tree, thy branches ne'er remember their green felicity. The north cannot undo them with a sleety whistle through them, nor frozen thawings glue them from budding at the prime. In drear-nighted December to happy, happy brook, thy bubblings ne'er remember Apollo's summer look, but with a sweet forgetting they stay their crystal fretting, never, never petting about the frozen time. I would twere so with many a gentle girl and boy, but were there ever any writhed not at passed joy, the feel of not to feel it, when there is none to heal it, nor numbed sense to steal it, was never said in rhyme. I mean, that's a great poem. I mean, the way that he, he keeps the, the, the prime time rhyme as something which doesn't rhyme with anything else, so that you know that there's an overall structure happening here, but at the same time, you can't quite get to it. And that's a very human thing. So you're reaching for structure, and you want it to rhyme with the thing you've just heard, but it won't rhyme, except it does rhyme. <laughs> 
It rhymes on another level. It rhymes on its own terms, which is what he's saying about nature. So we are stuck with memory, and we are stuck with all the things we want. And in the rhyme scheme, he shows that working. The feel of not to feel it, I think, the is a feel of not to feel line, it. Isn't, isn't it? that, I've a, an, ex that. an extraordinarily modern line? Mm. Uh, the feel of not to feel it when there is none to heal it. Lovely. Okay, Shakespeare. I'm getting for this you. love of form. I love form. As, Obviously, as we you started can with Eliot, yeah. which is a different sort of form, but you seem to like strong structures, rhymes. Uh, I like strong structures. Um, I, uh, I like the fact that what we write always has a structure, regardless of whether it's a structure that's recognisable. I like the notion that everything we write can question structure and that mm. there is no disconnection between organic structures and aesthetic structures, um, and that um, the question of how a structure is made is at the centre of all of us always, whether it's at a, a personal level or at a, you know, a national or international or natural or, you know, level. The, the notion of structure is everything, I think. Uh, that's form 385. This piece of Shakespeare uh, from Cymbeline. Yeah. Which is that, don't you go in, oh, do I have to read yeah. it? Oh, damn. Come on. But it is lovely. So, um, fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. Thou thy worldly task hast done, home art gone, and ta'en thy wages. Golden lads and girls all must, as chimney sweepers, come to dust. Fear no more the frown of the great, Thou art past the tyrant's stroke. Care no more to clothe and eat. To thee the reed is as the oak. The sceptre, learning, physic, must all follow this and come to dust. Fear no more the lightning flash, nor the all-dreaded thunderstone. Fear not slander, censure, rash. Thou hast finished joy and moan. All lovers young, all lovers must consign to thee and come to dust. Yep. Little tiny bit more. No exerciser harm thee, nor no witchcraft charm thee. Ghost unlaid forbear thee, nothing ill come near thee. Quiet consummation have, and renowned be thy grave. Oh. And that is That's mentioned beautiful. in autumn, isn't it, uh, in your book? I think... I've come across... Winter. In winter, in winter yeah, that's winter. right. In yeah. winter, that's yeah. right. And the chimney sweeper yeah. is the dandelion. Yes, do you know it? that? Chimney, I didn't know that. I, I know, a chimney sweeper uh, is when the dandelion has gone to, to seed. <laughs> and so that, and it's called a chimney sweeper because it looks like a chimney sweeper's a brush. fluffy brush. I know, so golden lads and girls all must as chimney sweepers come to dust, not just those people going up the chimneys, but mm. the flower which we blow, which sends its seeds away and is an utterly fragile, utterly beautiful thing. Such a beautiful, beautiful... It always reminds me of... I don't know if anyone here's read Grace Paley and knows about Grace Paley's writing. If you haven't, she's a great, great short story writer uh, who died about 15, 10, 15 years ago now. Um, and she looked like a chimney sweeper. She, she had a hair of bright bright grey-white hair and she looked like a dandelion head when it's ready to blow. She was, and that's, it's like, I think of, when I think of the seeding of the short story in our lives, I think of Grace Paley as the chimney sweeper of it all, you know? I still like to think of a chimney sweeper as well, though. I think it's got well, both. that. both, both. You know, that's yeah. the great thing, yeah. isn't yeah. it? Um, okay, let's have another, let's have another number. 
I mean, you are very, you love Shakespeare, don't you? And, and I do. I love Shakespeare. Say something I used to think about your love of Shakespeare, and then we'll get another number. I used to think Shakespeare, uh, you know, the, the collected Shakespeare was dropped on the earth by, by God, and that proved there was a God. I mean, because th these are such extraordinary understandings and structures and works to have handed down to us. Um, I can't think of anybody who is so preeminent in one art form, playwriting, mm. as in best it's possible to be, mm. and also equally brilliant as a poet. You know, in terms of the sonnets, that is an absolutely incredible body of work, the, the longer poems. I can't really think of any anybody who can do both like that. He's a very significant poet, even if he hadn't it's why the written plays, the plays. It's why the plays are so good, is because he's a poet. It's it's why it's it's just a fact. Um, the, in a, the books I've been writing have been featuring, as it were, kind of hanging onto the the ankles of late plays of Shakespeare, and the last one, uh, Spring, hung around the ankles of Pericles, which is only partly written by Shakespeare, which is an interesting experience, uh, having also kind of put it next to the great plays like The Tempest, uh, and Sim well, Cymbeline, I think, is a great play, and also The Winter's Tale. But Pericles, which has been handed down communally through people's memory, um, because the, the first copy of it was lost, and so it was remembered by actors and kind of strung together with bits of prose by a man who also wrote a prose version of it, um, sort, sort of to make the rest of the play. When you read it, it's like reading Shakespeare, but with all the leaves stripped off. It's like reading Shakespeare only in structure, but you know that it's still Shakespeare because it's like the mathematics of it have been revealed past the, you know, the, the workings of language, which, you know, to some extent make subtle the structure. What you get instead is just the structure, A plus B plus C plus D equals F, and how we get to F. And it's, so, so that was a really interesting experience, hitting Shakespeare halfway through Pericles and knowing that there was a... In fact, in fact, Shakespeare's handwriting is also one of the things I mentioned. Um, I, I uh, went to see, rather, at the um, British Library. I went to see his piece of writing. The, there's not much, is there? There's very what? little, but, but they've, at the British Library, they've got the Book of Thomas More uh, script, handwritten, and there are pages of it which now are, they are 99.999999% sure is Shakespeare's handwriting. And the speeches we have in his handwriting could not be more important to us right now because what we've got, what we've got left of Shakespeare in his hand is a speech about about riots happening in London uh, because people are angry at foreigners. Um, mm -hmm. and, a, and from the book of Thomas More, where a, a Thomas More speaks to the crowds and he says, how would you feel? Look at them off to the, the, the ports with their babies and their bundles on their backs. You've sent them to go to another country. How would you feel? How will you feel if one day you, your king, banishes you and you have to go and stand at a port in a, in a, a country that isn't yours and people are like this to you? That's what that speech says. It's electrifying. It's That's quite late, isn't it? It's a, yeah, Thomas and it's piecemeal. Thing. He wrote some yeah. speeches for the Book of Thomas More. It was, a, yeah. again, a communal work. But you know it's Shakespeare when you read them. It's so graceful and muscular and properly, structurally visceral. Uh, it's wonderful. Let's have another number. No. Three. Oh, <laughs> three nine and three. We had nine already. Do you, have again? we had nine? <laughs> Three, then. We had Thomas, we want Thomas Hardy again. <laughs> three. Well, it was nine Hardy, right, I'll keep three. track of Who this. Who chose three? Hand up. Oh, I see you. Uh, Stevie Smith. Gross. This English woman is so refined, she has no bosom and no behind. <laughs> <laughs> Stevie 
Smith. When I was at school, when I was, a, when I was a, a, in secondary school, we had, a, we had a poetry book they gave us in about the second or third year called uh, Modern Poetry 1900 to 1968 or 1970 or something. And it was edited by a man called George Macbeth. And it had fantastic poems in it. And there were, I don't know how many, maybe 50 poets, 49 poets, and two of them were women. And I clung like nothing on earth to those women when I read that book. I enjoyed the whole book. I loved it. But when I got to Stevie Smith, who's halfway through the book, and when I got to Sylvia Plath, who's at the end of the book, I was filled with astonished hope that in the middle of the century, you could have someone who would write like nobody else. Nothing else in that book was like the Stevie Smith. Nothing. Nothing else did what she was doing, and nothing else would have dared. And then at the other end, Sylvia Plath. Nothing else in that book had that force and that form and that kind of life roaring through it like that. But Stevie Smith, um, who looks like an anomaly and who gives you at every point what poetry does, which is makes you ask everything of words, everything. Aloft, in the loft, sits Croft. He is soft. He's what? What's he doing? Who's Croft? He's soft. Does that mean he's like soft because you're cuddling him? Is he soft because he's soft in the head? Is he in the loft because he's in his own head? Is he actually in a loft or is it a psychological thing? <laughs> Four lines. I will never stop wondering about Croft. Never <laughs> in my whole life stop wondering about that, that person, Croft. Made up, not made up. Anyway, um, one swan on the lake like a cake of soap. Why is the swan one on the lake? He has abandoned hope. Anyway, the, <laughs> the Stevie Smith poem I brought with me to read was called Away Melancholy. Um, uh, away melancholy, uh, because uh, in in our strange melancholy times, I, I opened by chance a, a book and it fell open at this page and I read it and I felt better. Away melancholy. Oh, did you know that Stevie Smith used to sing her poems to school children? She used to sing them. She used to go and, and speak to school children. She would sing outside the day they're singing apes on crew and she would sing her poems. I'm not going to sing this. <laughs> Away, melancholy, away with it, let it go. Are not the trees green? The earth is green. Does not the wind blow? Fire leap and the rivers flow? Away, melancholy. The ant is busy, he carrieth his meat. All things hurry to be eaten or eat. Away, melancholy. Man, too, hurries, eats, couples, buries. He's an animal also, with a hey-ho, melancholy, away with it, let it go. Man of all creatures is superlative, away melancholy. He of all creatures alone raiseth a stone, away melancholy. Into the stone the god pours what he knows of good, calling good gods, away melancholy, let it go. Speak not to me of tears, tyranny, pox, wars, saying, can God, stone of man's thoughts, be good? Say rather it is enough that the stuffed stone of man's good growing by man's called God. Away, melancholy, let it go. Man aspires to good, to love, sighs, beaten, corrupted, dying, in his own blood lying, yet heaves up an eye above, cries love, love. It is his virtue needs explaining, not his failing. Away, melancholy, away with it, let it go.
That's like a Shakespearean song, actually, I something tell you, about the rhythm of it. I tell you, this, whatever is happening in the audience is linking things together. Whoever is calling, so something is naturally, organically happening in this bingo calling jukebox <laughs> of, of an event. <laughs> I'd like to ask one thing about this, um, this book of poetry with very few women in. Um, it's an idea that we have at the moment that everybody needs to have models. Did you need to see yeah, women writers yeah, I did. to think, I, I can do that? There's no question I did, yeah. regardless of how much I thought it was nothing to do with society and that, mm. and that it's meritocracy and that everybody's fine and that you, know, you just get what you want and if people don't, they don't. Actually, I needed to be babysitting for my um, English teacher one night and um, so that me. I needed to be babysitting for my English teacher one night and to find on her um, shelf uh, a slim volume of poetry and to take it off to look at it and to see that on the front of it there was a photograph of a young woman sitting on a stone, Liz Lockhead, mm -hmm. Memo for Spring. Mm -hmm. uh, this is 1978, so this is very early in, in Liz Lockhead's output. Um, I think she, just shortly after I found this book on the shelf, she wrote uh, The Grim Sisters, but this was her first book of poems. And I looked at it and I opened it and I read a poem and then I read another poem and I thought, she's a girl, she's Scottish. She's writing in an English that is kind of Scottish, but is also English. And I was really excited and I knew it was possible. And we need, we need, we absolutely need those door opening threshold moments where you read something that is so good, that so speaks, that so allows you, that opens the door for you. And actually every art form opens the door all the time. But the notion that a, a girl, a, a woman, a Scot, a young woman could write in a kind of English that was every day, and I understood it around me too, um, gave me such an open door. Hmm. Wonderful. Yeah, let's look at it. Okay, more, more bingo. Um, we haven't had any, I don't think we've had any teens. Anybody want to shout a teen? 15. 15, okay, uh, let's have a look. One, two, three, four, ten, fifteen. Philip Larkin. Okay. Uh, I'm going to make you read out the list of the things that we, at the end, just to know what we've missed. What we've missed. It's and all good I'll stuff tell you what, we'll so do, far. We'll do that at the end. Yes, um, exactly. Because um, a... Then uh, you can we can choose the last one from people people want from that. Okay. Um, okay. Philip Larkin, the trees. The trees are coming into leaf like something almost being said. The recent buds relax and spread. Their greenness is a kind of grief. Is it that they are born again and we grow old? No, they die too. Their yearly trick of looking new is written down in rings of grain. Yet still the unresting castles thresh in full-grown thickness every May. Last year is dead, they seem to say. Begin afresh, afresh, afresh. Are you picking things partly because of your seasonal No, quartet? it's because these are the are things... thinking about No, 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 nature? these are the poems that have mattered to me all my life and that will continue to matter to me all my life. I presume the things I'm writing about are the things that have always mattered to me. Come out of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm. And with Larkin... Um, well, he's he's on a page in this this is this book. Uh, he's opposite William Carlos Williams, which is uh, which is interesting because I'll I'll, re I'll read to him as well. Um, pastoral this poem because I think they go together these two across the Atlantic, um, and 
again, very, uh, for me, very formative. Um, uh, poets who can speak plainly but speak formally and speak about things which are uh, so, uh, so touch on our real lives and yet are absolutely metaphysical. So this little William Carlos Williams poem is called Pastoral. When I was younger, it was plain to me I must make something of myself. Older now, I walk back streets admiring the houses of the very poor, roof out of line with sides, the yards cluttered with old chicken wire, ashes, furniture gone wrong, the fences and outhouses built of barrel staves and parts of boxes, all, if I am fortunate, smeared a bluish green that, properly weathered, pleases me best of all colours. No one will believe this of vast import to the nation. That's a beauty, isn't it? <laughs> Lovely poem. So, um, uh, so uh, the biggest argument I ever had with my partner was about Philip Larkin. Um, mm. And we nearly split up. This is very, very, very early on when, when we met. And I That's love... when you have those passionate discussions. I know, isn't very it? early. Well, I know, we still have quite passionate discussions, but this one nearly did it for us, which was interesting to me to, to find that I was so. That, that it could actually, you know, stop something happening in your life to love poetry so much and the other person not to love the same thing as you. And is this, is this the, but he was an awful man or was it a sort she of just didn't like a his literary... Poems. She just didn't like his poems. She didn't no. think he was any good. <laughs> and I was like, Philip Larkin, not any good. <laughs> because Larkin is, is uh, uh, again, if we're talking, if, that moment when I opened the Liz Lockhead book and understood that language at its most quotidian could be mighty. In fact, that's why those two poems go together very well that I've just read you. Um, Larkin understands the whole of tradition in a language of 1957, 58, 59, 60, 61, in a language of milk bars, in a language which I was born into, and in a language which uh, was, had been stripped again by history, but then could re-deliver the same metaphysic and the same lyricism, plus an understanding of where we were with lyricism at that point in that century. And uh, we did, we nearly spoke, we had such a massive argument about it, because I, I love uh, and always have loved Larkin. Uh, and always will. And the sort of questionable stuff that he got up to. I don't care. You know, yeah. we all get up to questionable stuff in our lives. And um, it well, just, he kept porn in his, um, <sighs> in his office. Tell me, who, tell me who doesn't, you know, who, who hasn't over the years. And just, just if, you, if we're going uh, mm. to get Philip Larkin in trouble for, for looking at porn, then, then what about all the generations now who now think that the porn they're looking at is sex? I mean, this mm. is a societal problem rather than a, an individual problem, although it's also an individual problem. I mean, that's mm. that stuff we need to be addressing properly rather than going, oh, got you, because we've decided uh, that the, which we say, the zeitgeist says this about this. Mm. I mean, I mean we, w human beings are a messy, useless conglomeration of getting through it, right? And, and you can sense Larkin's unseemly side in his poetry. And we all have an unseemly side, one way or another. Um, a, we come up against it, and it's just, I presume it just depends where we are in time as to whether or not that unseemly side is acceptable. And also uh, whether or not um, he, it means that, I mean, you know, Ezra Pound. What can you do? Celine, the great Celine, the French writer, what can you do? It's so, d Morrissey, what can you do? 
except know that the thing we make and the thing we are is separate and that the thing we are aspires to the thing we make. And actually, if we can make better than we are, then we did something right, is what I think. And, you know, regardless of the mess in which we live and the, the way we muddle through. Can I... Begin afresh, afresh, afresh. I just want to ask a, just a further question yeah. with that. I mean, the biography of Larkin um, caused a great... I mean, it's it come out the 70s or the 80s. Mm. It did cause a lot of... Um, discomfort at the time um, that there were things biographers shouldn't go into. It's actually a landmark in biography in terms of how you write Andrew Motion's yeah. uh, book. Um, what would you think about somebody writing your biography? They'd have nothing to say. <laughs> I mean, I have the most boring life in the world. I mean, you know, I, I just never, I can't imagine what, what people would find to say. It might so, be an interior life biography of all, all oh, the Oh, that'll ideas. be right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just, you know, if you're, an, if you're a lion tamer or if you've, you know, you've... <laughs> I don't know, if you've, if you've actually done stuff instead of just sit in your room or, you know, I mean... I mean, I've lived a very quiet life, really, so it's not, there's not much to say. So, so short book. Right. You know, yeah. And good luck to anyone who tries to find out something interesting because, you know, <laughs> I think about it and I'm asleep. So, yeah. Okay, yeah. I think we have got... Oh, actually, I think we'll go for audience questions. Okay, cool. yeah. If you have questions or... Do you want one more poem, one more bingo number? One more poem and then audience questions. Yes, okay. okay. A number, um, please. So another number. What do you want? 22. 22, 22 is... Oh, Edwin Morgan. Uh... Who here knows about Morgan, Edwin Morgan? Very yeah, lovely. a couple of hands have gone up. Edwin Morgan is the, he died. He's, he is, regardless, because writers when they're you know, dead are still alive, he is the greatest Scottish poet of 20th century. Yes, you know, because you've read him, you know, isn't he? The most astonishing uh, poet. Uh, 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 I am going to, okay, I'm going to let you choose which of the poems of Morgan's I read to you. No, I'm not, I'm going to read you the Shakespearean one. Um, <laughs> Which is uh, about the winter's tale, in fact. Uh, it's, wait till I find it. Let's find it. Let's talk amongst yourselves. That's the sort of thing that should end up in go. an archive. One, three, seven. So <laughs> that little notebook. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, what's the point? Right. Found it. This is Mor Morgan's uh, uh, instructions to an actor. Uh, Morgan, Morgan is a... I once saw Edwin Morgan read, I saw him several times read, but I once saw him read in his very, very late years. He'd been, he was, he'd been ill for a long time and he, and he was quite frail, but he read, and he read at the Edinburgh Book Festival in, in the Spiegel tent, and I swear to you, he nearly took the roof off that tent with the force of his quiet being. It was he and the, the, the life in the poetry. Instructions to an actor. Now, boy, remember, this is the great scene. You'll stand on a pedestal behind a curtain. The curtain will be drawn and then you don't move for 80 lines. Don't move, don't speak, don't breathe. I'll stun them all out there. I'll scare them, make them weep. But it depends on you. I warn you, 80 lines is a long time, but don't you breathe, you're dead. You're a dead queen. 
a statue. You're dead as stone, new carved, new painted, and the paint not dry. We will get some red to keep your lips shining. And you're a mature woman. You've got dignity, some beauty still in middle age, and you're kind and true, but you're dead. Your husband thinks you're dead. The audience thinks you're dead. And you don't breathe, boy, I say. You don't even blink for 80 lines. If you blink, you're out. Fix your eye on something and keep watching it. Practice when you get home, it can be done. And you move at last. Music's the cue. When you hear a mysterious, solemn jangle of instruments, make yourself ready. Five lines more, you can lift a hand. It may tingle a bit, but lift it slow, slow. Oh, this is where I hit them. Right between the eyes, I've got them now. I'm making the dead walk. You move a foot slow, steady, down. You guard your balance in case you're stiff. You move, you step down, down from the pedestal, control your skirt with one hand, the other hand you now hold out. Oh, this will melt their hearts if nothing does. To your husband who wronged you not long ago and hesitates in amazement to believe you are alive. Finally, he embraces you and there's nothing I can give you to say, boy, but you must show that you have forgiven him. Forgiveness, that's the thing. It's like a second life. I know you can do it. Right then, shall we try? <laughs> I interviewed Michael Pennington once, great Shakespearean actor, and he revealed what actors who have paid King Lear say to each other. They say, how heavy was your Cordelia? <laughs> <laughs> and there's something of that practicality the art of acting in that poem that you've just read. You know, they bring this amazing magic and their thoughts are, you know, on quite different practicalities. Yes. Um, shall we have some questions now then? Lovely. Can we raise... Oh, here's a question. Hello. Is it Fiona? Oh, right. I met Fiona earlier on and I said, make sure you have a question. Oh, well done, She said, Fiona. don't embarrass me. So here we go. Thank you, Fiona. There's your mic. Hello, Ali. Hello. Um, you talked about leading a quiet life and isolating yourself a little bit, which obviously, in order to read as much as you do and to write, is important. How do you deal with the pressures to interact with social media? Oh. I noticed you're not on Twitter. I looked for you on Twitter. You're not on Twitter, <laughs> are you? I, I, um, how do I deal with social media? I deal with yeah. it by not doing it. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that being public is a writer's job. Uh, so I'm sitting in front of you, you know, with a caveat today, which is that I'm, I'm not, you know, I, all I can be is myself. And that's now how I do the public thing that writers have been more and more pressurised to do in my time as being a writer. When I was first thinking it would be quite a thing, amazing, if you ended up being a writer, it was the time of Iris Murdoch and people who, Muriel Spark, people who never appeared anywhere. You didn't have to do anything, you just wrote a book. You know? mm. But as, I, as the, I started to write and publish in the 90s, uh, it began to even be written into contracts that you would do the, the things you're supposed to do. And I think those young writers now, it's there's heavy pressure to have a Twitter following and to, have, you know, to Instagram all the time and to, and to keep up your, your, your readership, as it were, by being a mm. person. Now, it's the opposite of what we do. And this is a real, a real dichotomy for this very unprivate world is that when we sit down with a book, you and me, we sit down 
and we open a book and we are in that book's world, in the private world, inside our heads, in our imaginations. It's an extraordinary gift, the stratified, synaptic thing that happens when we read a book. And it's nothing to do with a writer. It's nothing to do with, other than that it got finished and sent out to sea to hope it would hold water. So, so um, I keep away from it. It's, it's nothing to do with me. Um, I also know that if I was on it, I would get so much hassle. Um, and I kind of think, well, then why would I be on it? And so I think, what is that tool that is making things more difficult, things more angry, and yet at the same time also is a really important tool? H.G. Wells, the great H.G. Wells, um, a visionary beyond all visionaries, and Margaret Atwood's here, and you'll see her, and she's related to that visionariness. She's, she's the writer now, in a way, who's able to see like H.G. Wells. I'd like to know what she thinks will happen with social media, because she, I mean, she, and she knows that technology, we, it's the same as everything human beings do. We get it wrong, and then we decide to get it right. Um, there's always a hope in it. There's always, there's always hope. Um, but... Um, H.G. Wells, uh, not long before he died, wrote a, a book in which he invented, he saw the coming of um, the world encyclopedia, is what he called it. He said, at some point in the near future, anyone will be able to sit down anywhere in their house, in their bedroom, a student in a bedroom or in a, in a sitting room, and access the world's libraries in that room. He saw the internet. He understood what we could do, what we would be able to do. Now we have to do it, and we have to sort it and get it right, so that it is something that everyone can access. That is an open thing, <clears throat> which, which you know, in which the people who uh, make that network or access possible uh, don't control it in a way that means that things are not, you know, uh, available or things are available, depending, or make as much money out of it as they are doing, or use us as its fodder. Um, this is a thing we have to get to grips with. With the mass shift of technology. Never mind the fact that actually human beings are very private. And we are private. And we, we change by changing. And our lives are long. And they're full of mistakes. And so why we would want anyone to know those mistakes 20 years on or 10 years on? You know, uh, and also why we would we want to document ourselves in a way that makes us less than we are? Because... Algorithm has nothing to do with the human being. It's only to do with someone who will make money or something else out of it. Um, those are the reasons that my instinct says that's not anything to do with my job. Yeah? Yeah. Thank you for that question. Good one. A gent here, in the front, second front row. I think this will have to be the last question, by the way, because this has been such a fascinating session. We are. You at can the come end. and ask me things. You can come and ask me things if you want to. Exactly. The table at the back. Come and speak here. to me. Yeah. Did any of Bert Burns' poems make the top twenty-eight? Um, yes. Do you want to read your your list of ones? Yeah, I'll read. I'll read didn't. the list. But the Burns mm. poem didn't make the twenty-eight because it's a song. But it's the one that's in my head, and I thought if anyone asks me about Burns, I'll sing the song. There's a, there's, and this is a great story about Burns. I love it, and it's one of my favourite Burns poems. It's called You're Welcome, Willie Stewart. Do you know it? See, Burns wrote all these things, and this is a song that he wrote with his pen that had a, a stylus point, a diamond stylus. And he went round all the pubs that he drank in, and when he drank with his pals, he would write like verses to them on the windows of the pubs. Mm -hmm. So there's a pub, there was a pub, in which he wrote on the window, You're Welcome, Willie Stewart. 
Willie Stewart's friend. You're welcome, <laughs> Willie Stewart. There's ne'er a flower that blooms in May that's half so welcome as thou art. There's not a flower that blooms in May that's half as welcome as you are. Come bumpers high, express your joy. The bowl, we must renew it. Uh, the tappet hen, gang, bring her Ben to welcome Willie Stewart. That's all just things to drink. Okay, bring lots of things to us to drink to welcome Willie Stewart. Um, and then at another pub, he wrote a verse to Willie Stewart's daughter, Polly. Um, and that writing is still on the walls in that particular pub, which is called The Globe, which is um, somewhere in the west coast of Scotland. And you can still see the bit of verse that Burns wrote on the window in the same bit of window in that pub, The Globe. North of Dum I don't think it's in Dumfries, but it's somewhere on the west. Um, you're welcome, Willie Stewart. You're welcome, Willie Stewart. There's ne'er a flower that blooms in May that's half so welcome as thou art. That's it. That's all you're getting. <laughs> quickly, quickly read the list of the ones oh, that yeah. we didn't get, and okay. then we'll wrap up, and you will all flock to the back in our lovely bookshop. Okay. Get some books. <clears throat> Ali will sign. I'll start at the end. And ask any and questions. And we'll end at number one. Elliot, E.E. E. Cummings, Dylan Thomas, Edwin Morgan, several times, Vizlova Simboska, Jackie Kay, uh, Rilke, uh, Jay Bernard. Jay Bernard, who's mm. read her new book. Oh, what a book. It's mm. called Surge. It's astonishing. It's, she's, a, she's the real thing. Mm. She's the real thing. Elizabeth Bishop, Rilke, Tom Leonard, Shakespeare, William Blake, Philip Larkin, William Krauss-Williams, Hugh McDermott, Sylvia Plath, Wallace Stevens, Alice Oswald, Thomas Hardy, uh, Shesla Milos, Marina Tsvetaeva, Margaret Atwood, Keats, Stevie Smith, Louis McNeese, Muriel Spark. Woo. Very good. Very good. Ali, you have excellent toast. Thanks very much. Um, I think that has been really fascinating. I, it's also thank given you. us all kinds of me. insights into your own writing. Yeah. Um, Don't I tell would the like to thank again yeah. our wonderful sponsor, yeah. Viv, for, you. you know, we really need sponsors for all these events. And it's Ali and my first time at this lovely festival. And, thank um, you for having us. You'll be back, me. won't you? Oh, I love it. Thanks for having That's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.